Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Andrew Black, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion Andrew Black about his passion for sports in general and for bridge and for horse breeding in particular. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, Catherine. How are you, partner? Justin, I'm really well. How are you? I'm doing great. So, do we have some interesting news to share with our listeners? At least we hope that they will be interested. Our listeners mm. probably remember uh, we were very excited because Catherine and I every day play these day long, these free day long tournaments on BBO. And quite often we get extremely similar scores. And we took this to mean that our game is very similar. We're playing the same hands and we're playing them the same way. And we're all aligned on everything. Except people started pointing out to me at the club that actually they're not necessarily the same hands that you're playing. I couldn't believe it. No, earth shattering. Yeah. I, so we sat down and we compared the actual hands we had played in a day long where we had gotten, if not the exact same score, which has happened, but very close and discovered that not a single one of the eight boards was the same had been played by both of us. So there went that theory. And maybe you all already knew that it wouldn't be all the same hands. 
But for us, this was, as Catherine said, earth shattering. It was a revelation. <laughs> we went to BBO to get to the bottom of this. And we talked to someone off the record who confirmed that indeed with the day longs, they may have a hundred different hands at play. And that the purpose is to avoid anybody basically cheating. Um, and they think that's the fairest way rather than to have all the boards be the same for the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are playing them. Can I just cut in to say, Jocelyn, what sort of small mind wants to cheat on a free tournament? A free tournament that carries no weight, no master points, no nothing. Nothing. With robots. I know yeah. that was mind boggling, but the same savvy people at my club who said that they were not the same hands and it was to avoid cheating. When I said that exact thing, I'm like, who's going to cheat at a robot, a free robot game with no master points. And I was told I, yeah, it's pathetic, but it is apparently something that could happen and that people realistically want to guard against. So that was very interesting. What we also found out was that there are some tournaments on BBO where you enter the tournament and you're going to play the same boards with everyone. And that would be those instant tournaments, the robot duplicates, which I have been known to play when I have already played the daily free uh, robot duplicate game. And so I'm looking for something else to do with my copious and abundant free time. Um, not, but not all. <laughs> In fact, some of, some of the, uh, some of the things you'd really not expect, like the bridge four in the solitaire area, which I've also done a lot. Those are not the same. So that was interesting, too, because sometimes my scores there have really not made sense to me, like I that it's either been really bad or or really good. And so if it's not the same boards, that, that does make sense. I didn't get a whole bunch of slam opportunities on a particular set of four. And so I'm not going to get the best score in the room. You know, so anywho, very interesting. So does it change the way you feel about our scores when we do get really similar scores because honestly for me it has changed a little bit like I really enjoyed that sense that we were simpatico and now I'm like eh. I mean obviously there's still some kind of congruence in our abilities I guess but it's the same pleasure we did follow up also with somebody who's an expert in statistics who was saying that because of the number of boards and rah 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 there's meant to be some kind of confluence of skill around certain Level. So if Jocelyn and I are getting around the same scores, we're probably coming in at around the same skill level against the rest of the field. So I suppose there's still that. But, you know, I liked the idea that we were playing the same hands and doing the same thing. Me too. Because if, if it was really a reflection of your skill level, then I wouldn't get the wide variance in scores that I get. Because sometimes I get a very high score. Other times I get a very low score. So I had attributed that to the fact that I was approaching a particular type of hand well or a particular type of hand 
poorly. And, you know, God forbid I actually go and do the work to figure out what those types of hands are. But doing it the same as you did give me a sense that we were doing the same things on the same hands and knowing that that's gone out the window is sort of, um, it's a bit deflating, I guess. And so my balloon has been popped. And now here's a shout out from our supporter, Dan in Berkeley, California. Hi, Jocelyn and Catherine. I've been listening to your podcast since the very first episode and have enjoyed and learned a lot from every one of the episodes. Your interviews are insightful and entertaining, and your guests have been excellent, educational, and engaging. As a longtime listener and monthly supporter, I'd like to give a shout out to a good friend and mentee, Shazia. Shazia is whip smart and picked up the skills and finer points of bridge at a lightning pace. I started playing and discussing bridge with her around June of 2020 when she first started playing duplicate. And in December 2022, she became a life master in nearly record-breaking time. Not only that, but a few short weeks later, she became a bronze life master. Shazia continues to impress me with her adeptness and analysis, and I look forward to the day when you have her as a guest after she wins a national title. Keep up the great work, Shazia, Jocelyn, and Catherine. Thank you, Dan. And you can also enjoy supporter perks like Dan's shout-out to Shazia, as well as ad-free episodes. Just go to the Support the Show tab at sorrypartner.com. And now, back to the show. So, Jocelyn, time for a couple of letters. Are you up for it? (laughs) I am always up for it. Now that will get my balloon to perk up. (laughs) (laughs) You're reinflating as we speak. Yes, reinflating with the letters. Our first letter is from Anonymous. At my local bridge club, my partner and I were playing a board against a partnership, which I later realized must be just starting out on their bridge journey. I think it's so nice of Anonymous to describe it as a bridge journey. (laughs) Well, it is. Yeah, it's something. It's something. I opened one club, my left-hand opponent doubled, my partner redoubled, and then my right-hand opponent doubled the redoubled. (laughs) We've all wanted to do it. (laughs) Would that there were a card, would they pull out two redouble cards or something? (laughs) Whack you over the head with it. That wouldn't be allowed on BBO. (laughs) But why not? Why not? There was absolute silence around the table. I thought my right-hand opponent would say something like, oops, I can't do that. But nope, just more silence. I called the director who explained to my right-hand opponent his double was not valid, but my right-hand opponent couldn't see why there was any problem. As far as he was concerned, it was a legitimate bid and he should be able to make it and he was not at all convinced (laughs) by the director's ruling. What self-confidence, what chutzpah. Yeah. Later, when I mentioned it to my bridge group, we all had a good laugh. I guess some people can't be told. (laughs) (laughs) Cute. We've also heard from John about redoubling. Hi, Jocelyn and Catherine. Love your podcast. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks, John. I started playing bridge back in the 80s. We played rubber bridge during work at lunch with my friend who learned in college and taught us the basics. And I loved it. 
but life got in the way. And after a 35-year hiatus, I got back into it, but in a duplicate setting. Huh, so much had changed. At first, I tried to claim a 100 honours above the line <laughs> points. <laughs> after they giggled, they advised me that that's not a duplicate thing. And the bidding, oh my gosh, so different than what I remembered. But the doubles, the penalty type hadn't changed. Mm -hmm. On my very first day to play duplicate at the Fort Worth studio, I was doubled three separate times and it got my dander up a little. So I redoubled every time. And of course, I went down every time and received three deserved low boards. I hadn't redoubled a penalty double since <laughs> until a couple of weeks ago. My partner was doubled in a four-spade contract and I felt I had the perfect hand to redouble. So I did. We made five, one over trick and a high board. During the three-board sit-out, I told the director what had finally happened and I think he was as thrilled as I was <laughs> because he'd also been the director when I redoubled three times and paid the price. Well, I'm glad you finally, finally got it right, John. That's great news. And it, it's too bad, John, that when the redouble was not successful, that your opponents hadn't gotten scared by your confidence <laughs> and decided to take it out. Because I think I would be sorely tempted facing a confident opponent redoubling. Such a confident redoubler. Yeah. Yeah. Very scary. Very scary. And our final letter today, Jocelyn, is a limerick. And Chip is going to recite it to us himself. Hi, this is Chip Morgan from Ocean City, New Jersey. Here's my limerick from the New Orleans Nationals. Oh, I have to stop and explain that. I heard Adam Grossack call the Silidor Pairs, that big national event, the Silly Pairs. Okay, back to the limerick. While trying my hand at Pairs Silly, I suddenly brought out Gazilli. Pard jumped to a grand with no ace in his hand. I guess I'll just have to ask Billy. <laughs> a gazilli limerick. Love it. That's fabulous, Chip. Thank you so much. So if you have any fun stories to share about redoubling or perhaps about re-redoubling, or if you have a limerick to share, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram, or you can tweet us at sorry underscore partner or send us a voice message. These links are all in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Andrew Black. English champion Andrew Black has been playing bridge since his school days, having graduated from the local whist drive run by his grandparents. However, this is the only thing he graduated from. He was thrown out of university for spending all of his time in the bookies. His passion for sports betting ultimately paid dividends in 2000 with the internet creation Betfair, the world's first and largest bet exchange. And his love of horse racing, led him to become a successful owner and breeder. In 2009, he joined forces with the former England footballer Michael Owen to become co-owner of the renowned racing complex Manor House Stables in Cheshire. Andrew barely played bridge at all during the Betfair years, but returned to the game in 2011. Since then, 
Team Black made it to the final of the European Winter Games in 2016. They won the Gold Cup in 2017 and 2022. And as England came third in the Champions Cup in 2018. They reached the semi-final of the Rosenblum in 2022 and won in Iceland in 2023. We began by delving further into his grandparents' whist drive and how that laid the track for his bridge-playing future. My grandparents were very keen card players. I mean, obviously, that was a different generation. Um, and they used to run a local whist drive. I didn't play at the whist drive so much, but I did play with my grandparents a lot. And they taught me all the games, but they didn't teach me to play bridge. So we used to play, we started playing, you know, games like knockout whist. And then I guess games perhaps you wouldn't know, like, you know, sevens was a, was a game we liked and different forms of rummy. And then we played whist. And I just grew up playing all these games, but we didn't play bridge. I didn't play bridge till I got to school. But when I started playing, I fairly quickly heavily into it and I got to be reasonably good. And I think it was because I developed that kind of card memory for a very young age that you sort of have if you're playing cards. So, you know, I talk to people about memory and, you know, people who didn't start playing till they were much, much older. And they say, well, how do you remember all the cards? And I'm like, I don't know, it just happens. But I guess because my brain was taught to remember them from when I was very, very young playing with my grandparents. You had that track laid down. Yep. The pathways. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of tracks, how's that for a segue? <laughs> You're a racehorse owner and breeder and also a co-owner of Betfair, all these areas about gambling, I guess. We're quite interested to ask you about all of this. Um, horse racing is a huge part of my life. What happened first is I got into betting not because I bet so much. I mean, I do bet and I always have. But I got into that because I was into technology and the internet. I had a career of building websites for a lot of other people. And all the while, I'm thinking I want to build a website for myself. And I just sort of process all of that. And one day, I decided to give up work. And I started up my own business, which became Betfair. And it was very, very successful because Betfair wasn't like a bookmaker. It was like an exchange it's a platform for people to bet with other people. So we just sit in the middle and just take a cut of everything that goes on there. But it was, it was a nice piece of work. I was very happy with it, put a lot of thought into it. And it made me a lot of money and enabled me to get into horse racing. And since we made a lot of our money from betting on horse racing, I just got sort of engaged with the sport through that. So you sort of want to give something back to the sport. So I started buying the odd horse here and there and racing that. And from that, it just, my interest just grew to the point where today, as I sit here today, I'm on my farm. It's about 330 acres. There's at least a hundred horses here, most of which are owned by me. Uh, this morning I was down watching um, a foal being born. Same yesterday, a couple of new babies running around. It's an exciting place to live. There's always something going on. It's not always good because they're always damaging themselves. I mean, these young foals, they're almost born trying to commit suicide as far as I can see. But it's fun and I absolutely love it. And it's a huge part of my life. Do you ride? I would never ride. I'm much too heavy to sit on a horse. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that to anything. Did you ever ride? I have literally never sat on a horse in my life. I've sat on a camel. Um, I didn't enjoy that very much. I fell off at the end. But um, I've never sat on a horse and I've got no plans to. So only the professional jockeys 
ride your horses. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear about how you developed your interest in horse breeding, because it seems to me there's a parallel with bridge and the notion of difficult pleasures. What I mean is that we often find our passions through the discovery of more information. And the more we engage with the complexities of something, the more passion we sometimes find. Do you think that's a fair comparison between bridge and horse breeding? I think it's a very good question because what I get from horse breeding is not the sort of, there's nothing on the physical side particularly. What I enjoy is the analysis. So I do an incredible amount of analysis on racehorse pedigrees. I've got countless number of spreadsheets where I've, I've downloaded data from all over the world, look at all the different racehorses in a whole host of different ways to try and work out which horses I should buy and which, which stallions I should send my mares to because you know I'm looking at the genetic side of this um, and trying to sort of create animals that sort of are a good genetic fit, trying to create animals that are good over certain distances and so on and so forth. So it's a great big study that never stops. And I think that my bridge brain, I guess, which likes to go through data and, 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 and process stuff and just, just generally likes to think is to some extent satisfied by all this work into racehorse breeding. You've also been involved in, um, in gambling. I wasn't sure whether that was poker or other forms of gambling, what you were doing before the, the racehorse. I, I play poker a little bit. Um, I have poker tournaments at my house um, and I get all the dealers to come down from London and I'll have about 60 or 70 players and just be a big tournament coming down to sort of one. And the winner last time was my my 17-year-old son, Ollie, which is quite disturbing because um, um, I'm sort of terrified that I've turned him into a poker player. But actually, he also played extremely well to have won. Um, I mean, I do gamble, but I don't think I get so much out of it really. Maybe, maybe I did when I was younger. I think for me, I, you know, I love the breeding. I play a bit, of, a bit of cards, but nearly all of my sort of gaming, if you like, is bridge now. Do you find, besides rubber bridge, is there a gambling aspect to, to bridge that you're engaged with? I think just being very truthful, I made quite a lot of money at Betfair. And I think that in that time, I guess I sort of got to the point where maybe gambling for money wasn't so exciting for me. I used to play rubber bridge for money in the old days. So I worked in the city for about five years in my early 20s. And then I gave up work and I played bridge for a living for a year, playing at TGRs in Marble Arch as it was then. And I, I absolutely loved it. And I played really well for about nine months. And then I started playing badly. And I think I got a little bit bored and I think that I needed to do something else with my life because, you know, I was going out with a, a girl who I was going to marry and I don't think she wanted to be married to a professional gambler. I think she um, expected a bit more of me. And I, and I just felt that somehow when, you, when you're playing bridge for money, you start with a certain amount of money in your pocket and you finish maybe with a bit more or maybe with a bit less, depending on how the day went. But you're not actually getting ahead. You're not actually making any real progress in your career. And I felt that I needed to do more. So I gave up bridge and I went back to work and I retrained and I sort of became an internet developer, a website developer, because at the time that was, that was something quite cool, I guess. And it felt like the future. And then, you know, and eventually that led to Betfair. And then having made the money in Betfair, I was able to give up 
work and go back to bridge, which was my my passion. And I think today I play better now than I did then with, you know, all the time I have now. Is there a particular aspect of your game that you can point to as having improved? I think what I really enjoy is declare a play. I think if anything's improved, it's my defense because I play with a few people, but mostly with David Gold. David's quite, he's quite a good person for sort of putting you right. He sort of tells me off if I don't play the right card. He's whipped me into good shape. And I think since I've been playing with him, my defense has really come on. And um, defense is so much about playing with the right card and having, you know, a proper relationship with your partner, whereby, you know, you each understand what's going on. When you're playing rubber bridge, you don't have that. Because, you know, it's kind of random who you sit down against. So you don't have any agreements and you don't really get into that side of the game. So I grew up playing rubber bridge when all the focus was on either declare a play or just relatively simple bidding systems. So we wouldn't have any, any sort of mess ups playing with people I didn't, didn't really know. So you're just playing relatively simple systems. And moving from that into tournament bridge was quite a big step. We have to focus more on more sort of detailed artificial bidding, which I found quite difficult given I'm getting a bit old now. And also better understanding in, in the carding. So that's probably what's come on the most. But what I really enjoy about the game and always have is the interesting and unusual plays that can come up um, when you're a declarer. Is this the key reason, do you think, why you may have been bored with the game earlier and you're no longer bored with the game? This added dimension, this added complexity. That's a really, really good question again. And you, maybe it is. Um, I'm not sure how bored I did get, but I think I think rubber bridge can be a little bit limiting, as you say, because you can't really get into the bidding and you can't really get into the sort of systemic partnership agreements. And that does make it slightly limiting by comparison. So I think you are probably absolutely right there. What might David Gold say is a weaker area of your game? Uh, so David can get, you know, frustrated with me sometimes when I don't play by the rules. So I think a lack of discipline, and I think sometimes I fail to remember the more uh, uncommon usage parts of the system. So I'll make mistakes in the bidding from time to time. I'll get things wrong, and sometimes I get it wrong over and over again. And that can frustrate him quite rightly because, you know, you play with these professional guys, they almost never make mistakes. It's incredible. I don't know how they do it. And I think the problem with me is I'm just a little bit old. You know, I wish I could rewind the clock a little bit, but my memory isn't as good as it should be. It sounds to me that like you've always enjoyed being a little bit of a cowboy. You're probably right. But I don't know if I do things like that because I enjoy them or I do them because they feel right to me. So often I'll, I'll break the rules. Um, I'll sort of look at my hand and it won't look like what it's supposed to look like to me. So, you know, opening one no trump with a six card suit, well, that's one thing I might do, but there's a lot of other things. You know, I'll just look at a hand. I mean, I had a, I played recently and, and I picked up a four 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 one hand. I had a singleton spade and four little hearts to the seven. And then I had the ace queen jack 10 of diamonds and I had the queen jack 10 nine of clubs. I think that was the hand. And the guy on my right opens a heart. So I'm just, I'm, I just bid two no trumps, showing five, five in the minors, even though I've only got four, four in the minors. Um, and then the next guy bids four hearts and my partner bid five clubs. And then I think they bid five hearts and they went one all. And that was a very good result. Now, 
often when I do those sorts of things, it works out really badly. In fact, probably most of the time. But on that occasion, it didn't. But that's the sort of thing I would do fairly routinely. So, I, you know, I'll sort of bend things and twist them in my head. Where were the spades? Uh, my partner had a lot of spades. He had something like six spades to the jack. And, and that was left to our own device. I mean, if I, if I double, you know, obviously we're going to end up in spades. So I, it's, it's almost an impossible hand you sort of have to pass. And then we're never going to find the sacrifice because it's too dangerous to look later on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is there anything about Bridge that you find annoying? I don't think so. Um, I, I love the game. I guess there probably have been people from time to time who I find rude. And I'm never rude. You know, when I used to play Rubber Bridge, I would always be the guy who was buying everyone a cup of tea and I'd always be really friendly to my partners. And sometimes they wouldn't be so friendly back to me. Um, you know, you make a mistake and people can get very rude or very angry. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm a sensitive soul. I don't like that very much. And I'm not in it for the competition. I'm, I'm, I'm in it because I like the analysis. I'm on it, in it because I like, you know, the fancy plays and I like just processing it all and working it all out. You know, I'm the sort of guy who enjoys doing puzzles and that sort of thing. So I'm not particularly competitive in those respects. So I think if there's something that annoys me, it's rude people. Again, comparing bridge community to the horse racing and breeding community, is there a currency in courtesy? And do you enjoy both worlds because of the ritual surrounding the ways that people are supposed to behave? I think, I mean, horse racing is, 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 is a pretty friendly and polite sport. The one thing I like about horse racing is that there's no sort of, or there doesn't appear to be a kind of any class barriers, if you know what I mean. So when you go horse racing, if you're with a group of people, you know, you might have people from all sorts of walks of life. You might have sort of, you know, rich sort of aristocrats in the same room with working class people who just love horses and betting. And everybody's exactly the same and everyone's treated the same. And sometimes the perception of horse racing is that that's not the case, but it absolutely is the case. And it's a very, very friendly, very social environment. 
and I really, I'm really, I feel really happy in amongst those people. Bridges is sort of, I think it's slightly different because you get a lot of sort of academic people. So you don't necessarily have the same people. You have a lot of the same people, people who like, who sort of, you know, enjoy chance, if you like. But you also get some more sort of, I guess, mathematical types and so on and so forth. But either way, I'm very, very comfortable in um, bridge society as I am in racing society. When you're playing at a high-level tournament, are there ever any conditions or situations that make you feel nervous or uncomfortable or affect the way that you're playing the game in a way that you wish they didn't? Sometimes. I mean, I sometimes can get the better of myself for various different reasons. Sometimes it takes me a little bit of time just to settle and I play badly for the first day or two, and that's quite normal with me. It takes me a while to get into my head, particularly if, I, if I've been away from the game for a while, which is often the case. I don't like rudeness at the table, and I've had situations where people have been very rude to me, and then that can put me off for three or four hands. I might play badly, and I just can't see the cards, and I just, I just don't like that at all. And there are certain people, in, and not many, not many, but there are a small number of people in the game who I just don't like very much because I just find them to be rude. Um, and I would never mention any names. And, and the truth is there aren't many of those people. But when I play against them, I don't play as well as I should. That's probably why they do it. It probably is. So this is in the category of you getting the better of yourself. Do you consciously and deliberately work on skills to try and override that? I, it's difficult for me because my life is not all about bridge. I dip in and out of it. Really? <laughs> What's wrong with you? I, I know, I know. Well, so many of my team, it is all about bridge and, and, and they don't really seem, you know, they don't think about an awful lot else. I mean, obviously they do, but not to the extent that I do. So I have a sort of business life and I also have a family life. I've got four children. So what will happen is I'll sort of do nothing but bridge for about three weeks and then I'll dip out of it and I won't play any bridge at all for maybe five or six weeks and I'll just get totally out of my head on everything else. And, and so I find it very difficult, particularly as, you know, the years go on to sort of completely take, you know, I have to take my brain out and sort of turn it around and put it back in again, because it's got to focus on something completely different. And I find it hard. There's always a period of time where I have to sort of crank myself up and get moving. So that's, that's the biggest problem for me. But I mean, so long as you can get through the early part of a tournament and get into the later stages, you can start to build up your game as, as you go on. And that's what normally happens. So we, we won a fair amount of stuff online um, the last couple of years and, and offline. And what has tended to happen is that we start poorly, you know, often because of me. Um, and then we just sort of pick up momentum and finish strongly. You know, that's a pretty good way to play a tournament. So I'd rather play it that way than the other way around. Do you read a lot of bridge books? I used to read an enormous amount of bridge books and I have a huge library of bridge books. So I had a lot of my own books before and I bought somebody else's collection. So I have something like, you know, I've got over 10,000 bridge books here at the farm, most of which I haven't read. So I don't, if I'm honest, I don't read all the old ones because if it's that old, they're probably a little bit out of date and not that interesting, although some of them are still interesting. But um, I used to have a big collection and most of them I had read four or five times. So I'd read it, I'd finish it, and then I'd sort of read all the other ones and then I'd come back to that one and I'd just go round and round and round to the point where I almost knew them all backwards and recognize any hand from any of them. But um, 
I don't think I'm able to do that anymore. So I don't really read much anymore. What is it about having this collection that is interesting to you if you don't read them all? Um, I just think it's interesting to dip in and out sometimes to pick something up. I mean, I want to read more, but I just don't have the energy. So, you know, they're kind of there and I'm like, I really, really want to read that book, but I can never quite get to the point where I actually have, you know, the energy and focus to do it. But I'm glad to have them. I mean, it's just it's just nice that they're there. And I do I do sort of pick up some of them and sort of dip in and out occasionally and just look at one hand here and one hand there. Which book or books would you say have most helped your game? I think if we have to say which has most helped my game, it would be something by Terence Reese. I can't remember all the names of his books, but there was some fairly basic ones very, very early on that just go through in detail, you know, all aspects of the bidding and play. Definitely those were the ones that essentially brought me on the most. I mean, that would have been a very, very long time ago. If you were going to recommend a book to a newer player, would it be one of those Reese books or would it be something else? Yes. I mean, those Terence Reese books were really well put together. Um, they're really good stuff. He was, very, he was a very, very good man and a very good writer, very good player and a very good writer. And, and, and there's an awful lot of stuff in there that every bridge player should know. I think that if someone's looking for a little bit more entertainment, I think my favorite books are probably Victor Molo's books. I thought those were fantastically written and just very, very entertaining. But they're all sort of freak hands, you know, so you're not necessarily going to learn a lot from them, but they are just um, a very, very good entertaining read. Books like Bridge in the Menagerie, that sort of thing. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you were playing Bridge? I tried to think of something funny. One of the strangest things that's happened years ago, I was playing with against a legend of the game, Boris Shapiro, and he was quite an old man then. And I was playing at TGRs and we were playing for £10 a hundred, which isn't a fortune, but it's, it's a fair bit of money. You can easily lose £1,000 in a day playing at those stakes. I didn't play against Boris very often. Uh, he was well into his 80s by then. And sometimes he, he could have a bit of a temper on him. So I played one Chicago and the first hand I made three no trumps. The second hand I made three no trumps. The third hand he bid to four hearts vulnerable. And I looked at my hand and I just thought, I thought my cards were well placed. So I doubled him and he went two down, which was another 500. And the last hand it went pass, pass, pass to me. And I opened two no trumps. So um, obviously I was going to be in game for the fourth consecutive hand. And at that point, he started tearing his cards in half. And he got so angry and he literally tore his cards in half, threw them across the table and got up and left the room. And I was just absolutely stunned. And I went to see Irving Rose, who was a very good friend of mine. Um, I mean, he was much, much older than me. He used to call me boy, you know, that sort of thing. And I said, um, something very strange happened. And, and Irving called me into the other room. He just sort of gestured to me and he opened up the safe. And he pulled out some money, about £150, I think, and he just gave it to me. And he said, are we done? And I said, yes, we're done. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Was it something that resonated beyond, like, next time you were there, were people talking about it? Or was it just quietly pushed under a rug? I think I, I, I'm loath to be mean about Boris because he was such an amazing player in his day. And I think when he got very, very old, I, I think he was probably you know, a little bit past it. Um, he, was, he, he got a bit crotchety 
in his very old age and I didn't know him. So I would never blame him for that. I would just sort of put it down to the fact that he was just, you know, he was quite an old man and I guess he was coming to, to the end of his life and, 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 and that's that. So I wouldn't think twice about it and I don't think anyone else did. You just would shrug your shoulders and just, uh, you know, tomorrow is another day. And surely he'd earned the right. Uh, totally. And I would never, ever hold that against him. But I, I don't think I wanted to play with him very much after that. <laughs> no. What's the biggest schlamozzle or muck-up that you've ever made at the table? The, the problem is I've got so many of these that, that, that I could carry on all night. Um, I think when you look back on a tournament where you came really, really close you can't help but look back on on occasions when that one occasion when you let a few points slip here or there and and that, that caused you to fall out and i've got a few of those knocking around the one that um upset me most at the time was when i was playing in the european pairs and we were at the semi-final stage and i was playing with peter bertau and I'm in a three-no Trump contract, and I can tell that everyone in the room is going to be in the same three-no Trump contract. It's a kind of very obvious one, and I've got ten tricks on top, but I can see there's a squeeze there. And you know, when there's one squeeze, there's often another squeeze, and I'm just trying to sort of think about. I want to cover off all the squeeze options, and in dummy, I've got a king of diamonds and a small diamond, and in my hand, I've got the ace and three other diamonds. And I thought, well, I'll come back to my hand and then I'll, I'll take the heart finesse or something like that. So I came back to my hand with the ace of diamonds and I took the heart finesse and then I played it out and I, I you know, lost a trick at some point and I get to the point where I've got to play the squeeze card. And um, the squeeze card is, you know, I've got to play the king of diamonds and I look up and it's not there. And at that point, I just don't know what's happened because in my head it's there, but in reality it's not. And I, I still don't remember what happened, but my partner said I, I called from the King of Diamonds from Dummy and I overtook it with the ace. Um, and what happened was I made three no trumps on the nose, nine tricks. And that was 0% yeah. because everybody in the room was making either 10 tricks or 11 tricks, depending on whether they got the squeeze right. And that hand saw me out of that tournament. And it's really, really healthy that you've moved on. <laughs> I haven't moved on. I haven't moved on. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Where is it? Where did it go? I know, exactly. I just couldn't work it out. What do you think is the most underrated bridge skill? That's an interesting question. Um, where do people lose the cheapest points? Where's the lowest hanging fruit? That might be the question. I think some people read their opponents very, very well, and other people don't even try to read their opponents because they don't consider that it matters and they just play the game as if it's a mathematical challenge. And I think the most underrated bridge skill is possibly the ability to read the person rather than the cards. Is this again a skill that's valuable in certain kinds of gambling? I think it probably relates to rubber bridge a fair bit more than it does to the tournament bridge. But I think when you are getting to play in a lot of tournaments as I have done in the last few years, you do come up against the same people over and over again and you do start to know them and, and their styles and, and, and you think about them and you're starting to read them a little bit better. So, you know, the longer I'm in the game, the more I think it's important that I, I can read my opponents. And I probably don't read them as well as most other tournament players. Do you keep a written record of what certain opponents tend to do or is it just something that you store in your memory to retrieve as it will? 
I think I store it in my memory. I, I keep a written record of everything that every one of the players in my team ever does. So I sort of, um, I, I, I record every hand. Um, I process all of their butlers, including when we weren't given a butler. So I have all these sort of butler spreadsheets. I'm a proper, I'm a proper sort of data geek, really. So I will never not have recorded, you know, the information on all of my team players. And, you know, I'm not one to sort of go after them if they have a bad tournament. But at the end of the year, I do. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm ring around and say, oh, here are all your averages. You know, you didn't do so well here. You did all right here. And I'll go through all of that. And I'll try and find places where maybe they could improve. I don't really see it as my business to tell them how to play the game. But if I do see something obvious, I will bring it to their attention. And sometimes, sometimes that can make a difference. I, I bet they are really appreciative. I mean, I, I can't think of anything I would appreciate more than someone really focusing me on specific things that I tend to miss so that I can be aware of them, as opposed to it just being like, feeling like it's everything. I think there was a really interesting example. I'll give you an interesting example of that. So one of my pairs who are playing unbelievably well now, and when they just started playing together, they hadn't had a particularly good run for about six months. Their, 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 their butlers had been pretty poor. And I just went through it all. And I processed all of the hands they'd played. And I sent them an email out. And I basically said, do you realize that um, in the last six months, you guys have played 41% of all the hands you've played? So you have been declarer 41% of the time, and you've been defender 59% of the time. And do you think there's something wrong there? I mean, there is obviously something wrong there, right? There's a, there's a confidence issue. Not bidding enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You are not bidding enough, and it's absolutely clear. And they didn't realize that. I think they sort of thought that they were lacking a little bit in confidence, but it isn't until somebody lays it down before you and says, look at that, that um, it forces you to stop and do something about it. And it's that kind of realization. And once you realize that there's, there's perhaps an issue there, you start to track that after that. So I think it surprised them. And they started playing much, much better very quickly after that. I don't know if it was down to me. I mean, maybe that was just going to happen anyway. But um, they're in my team. And I, if I can help them, I will definitely try to do that. When you think about reading people, what would somebody who was skilled at reading people read about you? When I used to play Rubber Bridge, one thing I used to I learned to do after a while was never to sort my cards into suits because I knew that the good players in the game were seeing where in my hand I was taking a card from and they were working out information from that. And one of the guys who I was friendly with came up to me and said, look, you need to stop doing that because you're giving too much information away. I don't think that's irrelevant in the tournament game, but in the rubber game, that was something I was conscious of. I try to be really ethical. Sometimes I'm not, but not through just 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 because I'm 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 not necessarily concentrating. Sometimes I play too fast and I give information away. Sometimes I play too slow and I give information away. That's it's a very very difficult game sometimes because to do everything in tempo. And there are people who pick me up from it, but they're always very very friendly when they do. And I think I probably give information away by thinking too much at certain times. And my partners always have to try not to not to benefit from that information. Well, I think it's interesting to focus on the sense of reading people. I think some people are just very naturally good at table feel. Just it's an inherent skill that they have. I wouldn't put myself in that category. And it's not something that I've ever thought I could develop. I mean, I have one friend who thinks that she can even get table feel on online bridge, which I can't even imagine, you know, gleaning 
information from people who are sitting all at their computers. Do you think it is a skill that there's a way to get better at? I think it is a skill, but I think you sort of have to want to focus on it. And some people do want to focus on it and some people don't. I'm probably the sort of person who doesn't because I'm more interested in the sort of the technicalities, the plays of the cards, that sort of thing, and, you know, searching for an interesting or unusual play. So I probably don't benefit as much in those areas as, as some people. But if you're awake, then you are going to naturally pick up on on things. I mean, I was playing in a very, very big tournament recently in the semifinal, and halfway through the play, I saw the guy on my left he reached to, to his hand and he picked out one card and then he suddenly moved and drew out another card. And I just sort of saw him sort of switch from one card to another. And I knew then that he had another card in the suit and he gave me a piece of information. And I wasn't even watching him. I just saw it out of the corner of my eye. And at that point, I knew how to make the contract. And I would have gone down if I hadn't have picked on that. So I'm not consciously looking for that sort of thing. But if you're on your game, you can't help but pick up on those sorts of things. And if you're a bit sleepy, then, then you're not going to pick up on them because you only can, you know, it's as much as you can do to focus on, on, on what you have and where you are in, in, in the hand. So I think, I think I've sort of learned to just pick up on that sort of stuff. But, you know, as I say, the older I get, the more, I guess, the, 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 the less I do that sort of thing. Is there a skill that you think is actually overrated when it comes to bridge? Yes, I think that sometimes you look at some pairs and they've put an enormous amount of work into the artificial aspects of their system. So they've built in an incredible amount of meaning into all sorts of bids and they've made it very, very specific, hoping to get an edge from that. And I think the very, very good players do get an edge from that, but you have to be very good to get that sort of advantage from an artificial system. You have to really, really know what you're about. I think for a lot of players, what happens is that, that they somehow immerse themselves in it to such an extent they spend so much time working on that part of the game that perhaps other parts of their game lose out and they would be better going down some more natural route. That makes sense. They probably love it, though. They do. I agree. What's your best bridge memory? Um, I hope that my best bridge memory is to come because I've got a lot of silver medals and bronze medals and not many gold medals. You know, we've won a lot of tournaments online and that sort of thing, but most of the big ones have been sort of nearly there ones for me. I guess maybe when we came second in the Winter Games, the first time, there's the first tournament I played outside of the UK and we went across and played in Monaco and we came second and got the silver medal. And I'm like, wow, that was amazing. I've literally only just come back to the game. And um, the first time we travel away, we, we, we end up nearly winning it. And we were, we were actually leading with only a few hands to go, but we ended up coming second. But that was, that was a real thrill for me. And I think at that point, I felt I was going to be in this game for, you know, for a long time. Is there a gadget or convention that you really like to play? I like the little transfers. So I play transfers over a club. And that works quite well for me. It's a very simple convention. It makes things very straightforward. It just gives you um, a little bit more time in the bidding to get your hand across. I think that it's kind of underrated. A lot of people, a lot of people play it, but a lot of people don't. And I think there's an enormous value in that. Not perhaps it's not always appreciated. What about a convention that you really don't like to play? 
I don't come up against much that I don't like. I mean, I, I guess there's a lot of people playing a lot of stuff that I don't understand. And sometimes I'll feel that they're just playing conventions, not because the conventions have any real value, but because they want to be playing something that's difficult for me to understand or for everybody else to understand. And they might be getting a little advantage that way because, you know, we haven't developed a proper defense to it. So I guess if I was to say that, I would say the sorts of conventions that no one really respects, but that um, certain players use just simply because they think that the rest of the bridge world hasn't developed proper defense to it. That's sort of, to me, is slightly bad form. What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given? I think the best bridge tip that I can think of came from a chess player, um, Bobby Fischer. So Bobby Fischer once said, supposedly said, so you found a good move. Well, bravo but don't move so fast, you may now find a better move. And the point being that if you've seen something that looks quite interesting or a good line of play, that's great, but you might be able to find another line of play that uses that and is yet gives you an even better chance. So maybe sort of, you know, delay that and sort of try that line a little further down the line when you've done something else, you know. And I think that there are people in the game who when they see a good line, they just, they just think they've arrived. And they just want to execute it and not say, oh, well, you know, there's, hey, there's a great squeeze there. I'm going to play that now. But they don't realize that maybe there was another squeeze. Maybe there were two squeezes. You know, yeah. they could squeeze in three suits instead of two and they had to work a little bit harder. But so when you see the line, you don't just go for it. You carry on thinking for a little bit more to see if there's an even better line. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been so interesting. Thank you. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Andrew Black. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. But be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Andrew says, don't automatically pursue the first good line of play that you see. Carry on thinking a little more and check if there's a better one. There might be two. There might be three. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.